Hello, and welcome to Love is the Author. I'm Jamie Carpenter. And I'm Lacey Dunmore. And welcome to episode one of our podcast. We're, we've decided to launch this in an effort to explore modern-day mysticism within the realm of practical everyday life. And we're both coming to you from Ojai, California, in Central California. We've been here a couple years and we currently co-found, co-own a <laughs> an addiction and mental health center that's spiritually based in Santa Barbara. And we've been there for three years, and both of us have over a decade, well over a decade of of working in addiction and mental health. The offering of our center and the offering at least of who we are as individuals these days is our efforts are mostly spent trying to evolve consciousness around how we treat addiction, how we treat mental health, how we treat everyday common instabilities in life, which we believe are all pain related. But for this episode, we're just going to focus on an introductory between us both and giving you a little bit of our backgrounds. And my story really starts, I mean, certainly there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of emotional baggage I had in my childhood due to a variety of circumstances, but a lot of unchecked and unrealized and unworked with pain that was left largely unexplained just for me to sort of be able to sit with and wrestle with and work into my consciousness. And what I found is that it was really painful being me as a child. I just thought, you know, being this character, this Jamie Carpenter character hurts a lot. And so I decided at a certain point when I was around 13 that It was going to be better to be anybody else other than me, so I spent the next 13 years of my life lying really almost about everything, about all of my accomplishments, about, you know, I just made up stuff constantly. I was kind of really addicted to lying before I even became addicted to drugs, which happened later on. And finally, it all caught up with me, you know, I mean, I got... Sober at 26, and I had been homeless for a period of time leading up to that, and I had pretty much burned all of my bridges in life and had burned through every single person, and uh, I ended up just being someone that no one wanted to be around that was close to me because I would inevitably most likely do whatever I could to sustain my addiction, which was just this cyclic sort of escape pattern that I was in. I mean, I just found that like over time, all of these lies, I knew that I was lying to myself and all of this pain from childhood that hadn't been worked through, you know, it was mounting. It was just really in the driver's seat. And so when I found drugs and I mainly gravitated towards opiates and MDMA and you know, things that really made my body feel good, that brought a comfort like a warm blanket, you know. But I was so divorced from the child within, you know, I the innocence within. I had wanted to get beyond my childhood so quickly because uh, I felt like it was really painful being a child. 
And so at 26, when I was lucky enough to get into a state-funded treatment center, I went through all the conventional methods of getting sober. Treatment, and then coming out of treatment and going into AA. And I did that. I found there that, in AA at least, I found uh, a new way of life. You know, it was all based in honesty and action, and I thought that that was a lot better than what I had been doing, you know, and it was noticeable on the outside. I mean, when people get sober and they're living an abstinence-based life and they have some guidance, um, you usually see a lot of changes on the outside. You know, you can see the, uh, some look in their eye, you know, when somebody's cl- clear and clean. You know, they're not like looking all over the place for an escape or what they can take. You know, they just really become more focused. And and I I did all the stuff in the first year. I worked the steps and um, had a sponsor and then kind of like leveled out a bit and knew that I had to like get employment and all that type of thing. And I was really craving someone to show me not how to be sober anymore, but how to sort of be a human being. And at about a year in, I met a man who really stood out to me, who had been sober 20 years. And he had this devout interest in spirituality, but he just looked like a normal person. You would never take him to be somebody that was that spiritually deep. And maybe there's just, you know, maybe that's really where we should all be heading, you know, is not, you know, getting caught up in spiritual materialism per se, but he just looked like an average guy who's in his 50s. And he used to be a really terrible dope addict. And he had been meditating a while and working with A Course in Miracles. And uh, he got me meditating. And that was the beginning of me cultivating a true individualized spiritual experience. And um, shortly after he and I started working together, he, he traveled to Tibet. He had an interest in exploring spirituality and, in his remaining years, and he thought that he only had a short amount of time left, and he was right. He went all the way to Tibet, and he, got, he met a, a guru, in, uh, and he got snuck into Tibet, and it's, it's dangerous to do that as a Westerner because it's illegal, and there's a Chinese occupation there that's been there since 1959. And at any rate, he learned some really profound teachings and a form of meditation within the Nyingma lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. And he brought it back to me. And I had always had this interest in the Tibetan tradition, especially because of my early love of the Beastie Boys. You know, anything that those guys were into, I, I wanted to know more about. And so when MCA of the Beastie Boys got deep into the Tibetan tradition and started the Free Tibet Movement... You know, I just always wanted to know more about it. And and uh, so having this man teach me stuff and get me involved in that, I mean, at first there's a lot of pride around somebody showing you something that you're interested in like that, you know, and, and I just was like, you know, caught up in the materialism of it, really. But it, through the last 15 years or so, working with a lot of, uh, a lot of the teachings in Tibetan Buddhism, it's drastically changed the way that I see life. I now see life in a multi-dimensional way where nothing is solid and everything has a story and it's all due to this exposure to Tibetan Buddhism. 
Well, at any rate, you know, I worked, um, I I continued to stay sober in AA for about a decade and was working with these meditations, working with a lot of the teachings that my teacher brought home. And at some point, you know, there was a reckoning. I felt like I didn't relate anymore to being a sick person, you know, and in AA, that's sort of the idea is that, you know, the first step is admitting that you have an issue and uh, that it's alcoholism and they characterize that as a disease. And it's from the early work in AA that has led to the American Medical Association defining alcoholism as a fatal illness which allows for insurance companies to pay for treatment and that whole thing. So it's all based in this this deprivation model. And there's a lot of talk around you being sick. And it's okay, though, that you're sick because, you know, treatment or the 12-step community has what I refer to as being like a nice wheelchair, you know, that they'll roll you around town. You can still be productive even though you've lost your legs. And it's just... I at a certain point, I just didn't relate to being sick anymore. And I just didn't want to have that label. And so I, you know, the, the short story is that I sort of stepped outside of the 12-step community and really dug deep into my spiritual practice, which included dropping a lot of these identities that I'd had of myself, including that of being a musician, an artist, um, you know, and that of being sick, that of being a victim, all these things. I just surrendered with a lot of grace. Uh, my life sort of was at a dark place within sobriety where a marriage was falling apart and uh, the, my profession was not paying for the bills and I had had kids at this point in sobriety and we were getting kicked out of apartments and it just, life hurt. And I thought it was all based around this notion of myself that I had. Some suspicion was I needed to drop these identities and really step into whatever it is that made me and really staying clear out of labeling it too much. But you know, you could say God or the universe or whatever, the spirit of the universe, you know, life itself, asking life itself to guide me. And I did so abruptly and sharply. And I, I stopped pursuing all of my endeavors. And I just would meditate really early in the morning and ask whatever it is that's out there to use me and to make me what it intended for me to be. And rather than my own ideas of that, which was just a drastic a drastic contrast to anything I'd ever done in the past. And I did this all on my own mentorship, sort of trusting in the higher part of me to guide. And there was a real change in that year. You know, this is 2013. And I just was seeing the world differently. And my, my life on the outside was getting materially was dwindling and looking like, you know, the world outside was crumbling. But on the inside, I had this strong reserve. And uh, I really believed in that. And in 2014, I, uh, I was hired to be myself, to be this person who I was becoming, to be myself in, in, at this uh, new treatment center called Acadia Malibu. At the time, it was called Acadia and uh, it changed its name 
more recently to Aloe House Recovery Centers. And I was there on the ground floor with them, and uh, they took a chance on me because they saw something in my eyes that they wanted me to share with their clients. And so I was hired to uh, be the spiritual director of their center, really based on their exposure to me, which their exposure in a very short window of time, I mean, we're talking a 20-minute thing. They saw something and they're like, you need to come and do your thing here, please. You know, just try it. We beg that you just try it. And I did. And uh, so I worked there for the next few years until 2017 and you know, the idea of treatment, it's, you know, the places with the best of intentions end up doing it really a lot of the same way as sort of this, you know, based in numbers and filling beds and all that. And this place that I worked for in those years sort of was, was becoming a really big place and I was wanting to keep things small. And I just dreamed of having a center where, where we could do really heart-centered work an unlearning center is what the idea was, a place to not add more labels and diagnosis, but to to start taking away labels and to develop spiritual practices that it can help sustain people through all kinds of instabilities in life. And really staying out of the notion of common recovery or common sobriety or common mental health stability, like really getting down deep because I believe that these accumulated pain moments in life lead to addiction, lead to anxiousness, lead to depression. And it's not like you're born wrong or born off. I really believe that it's environment. And that if we take a look back with some care and some mentorship, that if we look at these old moments and, you know, extract some wisdom from them, you know, rather than moving beyond them and having them be this nag or this chain that we're bound to, but really reframe these old moments as being a means to connect with people, future people, you know, people that, that you are to meet down the road or even today when you leave your house, you know. And so I did that work and it had led me to feel free and not feel sick anymore. You know, and so I, I just don't believe that people are sick. I believe that that we can regain stability and health, and that uh, and that is the focus of my work. And so that's a that's what led to the opening of Good Heart Recovery in 2017. We're coming up on three years, and it is more of a spiritual ashram, uh, more of a throwback to the the late 60s when when things are really popping off in the counterculture and it's a real fun place to be um, and my intention is to spread this message is to unlock people from this old archaic model of believing that they're sick and to evolve the consciousness around treatment around addiction around mental health and just around pain itself so that's a bit of my story and and uh, now I'm going to pass to Lacey. Thank you. My story is, it feels simple. <laughs> Although upon reflection, 35 years into it, I guess it wasn't so simple. But I was raised in Calabasas, California, Southern California. 
and I was raised by two parents whom are still together to this day, still in the same house that my father built in Calabasas, and back up in the hills, my parents were hippies. They were appreciators of the land. They still are, and not until recently... I've made a lot of connections of where my appreciation for the earth has come from, and a lot of it has come from them. Uh, so I had an older brother. I have an older brother. He's three years older, I think. Yes. And he, um, we're very similar and very different. I, my, my early childhood was really magical. I was outside a lot. I had a lot of comforts. I was never in need. Um, I went to school and really for the most part in my childhood through college, I kind of just every did everything I thought I was supposed to do. Um, there were bumps in the road. I I really struggled. I think like most, just in middle school and in high school with general development stuff. But late in high school, I developed an eating disorder. Although I didn't know that's what I was doing at the time, um, but but you know, upon reflection, it was a way of coping with all sorts of things, including. I think some part of me already at that early age was um, rebelling against the culture of, of what I was supposed to be. Um, and of course, family dynamic stuff and just general pressures of, of, of being a, a, an adolescent. So that I struggled with that from about the age of 17 to... I would say 23, some periods of minor healing and then kind of relapse into old patterns. And, uh, and, and again, didn't really know what I was in and didn't understand what was going on really until a lot later. Uh, I started just kind of working like easy high school jobs I did fairly well in school. It wasn't really until college that I started to really apply myself. I was really depressed and I kind of, that's where I put my energy was in school to feel some sense of accomplishment. And, and I feel like I, I finally felt like I was doing things for me. And so, so I, I did a lot better academically when I started going to college and I went up to Santa Barbara for a year to do city college and relapsed in my eating disorder and had a really difficult time, but I really liked school. And so I kind of made a commitment to just continue college. But I, I was in city college for longer than your average person until I really decided what I wanted to do, which was I, I decided that I wanted to be a therapist. And I, I'm not really sure where that came from. I just feel like it was the calling and it was just the seed that was buried in my soul since the day that I was born just coming just blooming on its own had you um, had exposure to therapists that- yeah so I think that was maybe the other part is I had exposure to therapists when I was going through my eating disorder and I was really disappointed in the care that I received 
although I was resistant, so I, I don't even know, I don't know how, if that's just subjective or subjective, I, but I didn't, I didn't like the care that I got during that time, both from my parents, although they did like amazing, but they didn't know what to do and nobody knew what to do and nobody knew how to talk to me and everybody just kind of treated me like I was just like Jamie, like I was sick and I was like, it just like I just needed to go to the nutritionist and take orders and do these steps and I would be fine and it was far more complex than that um although again I wasn't in touch with that at the time so so I started did I start going to college no I was working at a, a smoothie store and had a lot of fun with that in high school and then my dad kind of my dad's pretty successful and he he didn't pressure me but he was I think he just knew my potential and he pushed me a bit to to take some more risks with career and rehabs were kind of like the thing at the time like all the celebrities were going to rehabs and kind of knew I wanted to be a therapist so I wrote a bunch of letters to a bunch of rehabs in or emails copy and pasted an email to a bunch of rehabs in Malibu when I was 21 saying like I'll sweep floors. I kind of just want to be in the environment to see if this is what I want to do. And um, and so somebody at Passages Malibu responded to me. And I went in for an interview and I got hired and it freaked me the fuck out. And I thought by day two that I was going to bounce. And I had a supervisor there who had been there for a couple years and and I really admired him and he said he had been there for two years and I was like I just want at least to get to two years and I just knew that I needed to fight against my comfort zone and so seven years I worked there for seven years and I left there in the position of director of aftercare and made some of my best friends there and I was never in recovery for drugs and alcohol but I I understood pain and what I really found in that job was that just by being myself I was helping people and that was like the greatest gift of my life and I just fell in love with human beings like was always an introvert like didn't really want to be around people and that job forced me to be around like 20 to 50 different people a day and I fell in love with every single one of them and I couldn't believe what was like happening so and you rose up from the smallest role to being a director yes in a short yeah and in and, and in an environment that a lot of people didn't survive in and i i just was always like a high turnover high turnover it was that you know that treatment center started at a time where it was a lot of private pace it was a lot of like a lot of um high profile a lot of money kind of just yeah it was it was a difficult population but it was also an amazing population uh it was also a spiritually based center and it was rebellious in that it proclaimed that it had a cure for addiction um that addiction wasn't a disease and I didn't even really know what that meant at the time because I wasn't so familiar with um Alcoholics Anonymous but I could feel the rebellion and I could feel the spiritual leanings and something inside of me was just like lit up something that I I felt like was in me since I was little but I had you know of course you have no reference 
Um, and I was just really respected around there and I respected everybody around there despite all of the chaos and again, made some of my best friends. So I was going through college during that time and undergraduate and then I entered my graduate program and I needed to start to gain hours towards licensure and I wanted to be, they were counting some of my stuff at passages, but I really wanted to do individual therapy and just logistically they couldn't let me be a therapist. So I was at a supermarket one day in Malibu and had had a relationship with a bunch of other treatment centers around there and the owners of Acadia Malibu saw me in the store and were just checking it and I had a relationship with them. They were saying, asking me about what was going on and I told them that I wanted to move on and be a therapist somewhere and they said, well, why don't you just come to Acadia? And I had a couple meetings with them, one of which I was brought to Acadia for a clinical meeting and that's the first time I met Jamie. He actually let me in the gate and uh and I thought he was super cool and the clinical director was really cool she was a she was a rebel and I was never a rebel my whole life I was an angel I did everything right but some part my rebellion was kicking in and I liked Mm. people that were challenging just challenging things and she was cussing and and it was just a cool environment and I was like I'm doing this and it was really scary and uh but I left passages and in December 2014 and I started at Acadia Malibu in January 2015 and really just again fell in love with the work I was doing individual therapy I kind of immediately saw that I was good at it and I wasn't really doing much (laughs) Other than being myself and loving people and being compassionate. And of course, who I am now as a therapist is far different than who I was then. Although maybe not. (laughs) Um, Is there a clear indication of a momentum though from like those beginning sessions where you're starting? Yeah. And I think most of the momentum is based in confidence. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like I felt really confident about taking more risks and teaching myself new things. And, and I, I had a lot of really good people that inspired me at passages and then at, at Olive house or at the time at Acadia now Olive house. I had a lot of people who were really inspiring to me, including Jamie. So I, I, I really, Jamie and I got really close with another friend of our best friend, Carson. And we kind of had this bond and, all through 2015. Yeah, and we, I, and I feel like we really were built a culture of that place that was just based in love and compassion and fun. We had a lot of fun, and we, I started doing sweat lodges there, and that was changed my life completely. I, I feel like I was reignited with my love for the land because it was in the hills where I grew up, and. So a lot of just magic was happening, and I started to see that. I feel like I was blind to it most of my life, and I started to really see the magic happening. And I was in a a romantic relationship that was not serving my spiritual growth, and, um, and I abruptly left that relationship and later fell in love with, not far later, fell in love with Jamie and a coworker at had uh, Acadia now Aloe pulled us aside and said I see you guys and I see how important you are and 
I want to open my own place in Santa Barbara because there's a need there and I want you guys to create the program and Jamie, I want you to be the spiritual director and Lacey, I want you to be the clinical director, which I swore in my life I would never be a clinical director. <laughs> um, and I wasn't licensed yet. I had about a couple more months and, but I just said yes because I knew that I had to. Why is it that you had, why is it that you avoided wanting to have that time i don't like responsibility like most human beings like i feel it felt scary to me i felt really comfortable where i was i really liked my job i really liked what i was doing i i loved being mal like like it was like why would you leave this and then and being a clinical director like i worked with a lot of clinical directors who honestly (laughs) were didn't give it a good rap and so, so it freaked me out a bit. But I just said yes because I knew saying yes was the thing to do in order for me to grow, especially when I didn't, I didn't want to say yes. Well, and now you've set the stage because of you've helped evolve that position into something that, uh, you know, there, there's a, there's, you've exposed a lot of the potential there that hadn't been was was you know real estate that hadn't been worked with within the position spiritually and how to be caring and how you know right how to be balanced and fair and, right you know. and it was very much like passages in aloe and and then courtney and goodheart they all really like they all really allowed me to be myself and and really kind of make the position that i was in my own and they got gave me a lot of like um I forget the word I'm looking for, but they just, I was allowed to get creative and I'm finding now that creativity is my, my way out of suffering. And so I think that they were really speaking to that and, and I just wanted to love people and I didn't really want a lot of boundaries to love people. And I knew that loving people was the way out for my own suffering and for theirs. And, and so, and so started working at good heart and and all and as co-owner and clinical director as co-owner and clinical director moved to ojai which is another thing that's just really supported my spiritual growth and and me just being myself and all along really starting at aloe from now although i felt like it's of course been with me my whole life is like my my spiritual growth has been the the great benefactor in all of this it's it has been the thing that's it's getting a little out of control. I kind of don't have control of it anymore, and it wants to keep doing things to help and create. And that's kind of where I am at the moment, and that's a big inspiration to do this podcast. And my intention for the podcast is much like Jamie's, is to put a new... Um, perspective on pain and really show people that they their own perspectives can can be um shifted just through understanding you know the nature of love or the the nature of nature that we we tend to have these really narrow views of life based in the conditions in which we were brought up in and it and it tends to really harm ourselves and others and so we're just here to help expand perspectives including our own of of old traditions that can be fit into a contemporary world and really 
they're really simple. Mm-hmm. They're for, they're really simple. So that's me. Well, and really, like, you know, it 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 stuns me to this day that, you know, what's taught to us is that life is about an accumulation. It's an accumulation of knowledge, accumulation of wealth, material gain, and really the secret has been like I got everything that I wanted in going into emptiness into non-accumulation as a matter of fact the opposite sort of you know throwing things off of the boat (laughs) you know making more room for the wisdom that was here before I was here that's here now and will be here after I'm gone to pour through me and so all of the good things in life have come not from gaining, but from hollowing out, from emptying, and from getting really still and allowing this spaciousness, this loving awareness to emanate every area of my life. And it is undeniable. It is an undeniable fact that with the dropping of egocentrism, and which is really hard which is really hard <laughs> and especially you know you get in a position like ours where we've worked with you know thousands of of human beings struggling and we're put in these positions where you know we're kind of these heroic characters or have the potential to be in people's consciousness well not even that the ego is just the it's the thing that keeps us safe our whole life so it's not even so much it's egocentrism too but the ego keeps us safe and it develops these really helpful things to get us through but they wear out their welcome and to drop those old defenses that protect the ego is that's also really difficult. Well, those ways that keep you safe start wanting like bedazzled clothing and crazy hats and, you know, all kinds of stuff, dressing up like the very basic survival nature of ego. You know, it's that's where you get into egocentrism. But, you know, I feel like everything good in my life has come from not me. You know, it's, I don't take credit for it. Like, it's been an emptying of the meanness. And through getting rid of, like, who I think I am, all of what was meant for me to be flows through. And it's a really interesting thing that it's the exact opposite of what we're taught. And so, this is a part of this mysticism in modern day life that goes into the practical because I, we're, we're, we're people who pay our bills, we pay our rent, we pay our taxes, you know, and as it's been said, we at the same time know our Buddha nature and our social security number, you know, and that's, uh, so you don't necessarily need to completely abandon your worldly life to be able to live in a form of mysticism. The two can walk together at the same time, hand in hand. And that is what I teach primarily is how to walk in the spiritual world and the material world at the same time. You know, and that's really the, what the shaman does. You know, they're known for having one foot in the material, one foot in the spiritual all the time. And for me, that's the only way now to see life, you know. And so we work with people in this way, you know. And we're, 
our primary objective is to be authenticity generators for human beings. You know, really just abandon and 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 strip away all these old layers of conditioning. See if they still serve you. If not, emptying yourself of them and finding who you truly are underneath it all. Really getting a chance to explore that. So all these old ideas need a drastic revision and that's what we help people facilitate. And so it is the intention of this podcast to help aid that and to reach more people outside of our center. And I hope that you've enjoyed this introductory podcast. It's been really great being with you and we'll see you next time. Om Namah.